This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. For that song, that joy still remains even in the midst of very confusing times. Just after Easter, I love to once again read the texts that occur in the days and even the week and the weeks shortly after Easter. One of those texts is what we'll look at today. And it is coming from the afternoon of Easter, probably afternoon and early evening. It's the story known as the walk to Emmaus. I begin in the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel, starting at verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing while, with each other while you walk along? They stood, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, well, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near to the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It's almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. And he broke it 
and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how they had how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let us pray. Lord, take your word and drive it deeply into our hearts. That our hearts might burn within us. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's no baseball going on right now because of the coronavirus. And for me, that's a little sad. No, it's a lot sad. In fact, in an act of kind of sanctification, I decided mid-March to even give up baseball for Lent. Never done that before. But now it's past Easter and it's still gone. All that is on ESPN are replays of old games. So in light of that, let me tell you a baseball story from 2007. The Red Sox won the World Series Series that year, and their opponent happened to be the Colorado Rockies. Well, we were living in Colorado then. Now, there wasn't much drama in the World Series, no real story to tell. The Red Sox swept Colorado four games to none. But it was the most amazing September to live in Colorado because Labor Day, the Rockies were just an average team, not moving anywhere. And then they went on a tear. They won 21 out of 22 games, scorched their way right into a tie with the San Diego Padres for the final playoff slot. They had to have a one-game winner-takes-all playoff on October the 1st, 2007, Colorado and San Diego. Well, I was pretty excited. I wanted to see what was going to happen. I knew I was eventually going to root for the Red Sox if they played them, but first time, go somewhere and maybe get to the World Series? The game was full of drama. It went back and forth and back and forth. By the end of the ninth inning, the game was tied six to six. That meant we had to stay up and watch a little more. By the end of the 12th inning, it was still tied six to six. It was getting late. I was supposed to get up at 4.30 the next morning to lead a Bible study for men at the church at 6 a.m. I had to go to bed. I I couldn't watch anymore. So I crawled into bed with the remote in hand and watched just a little bit more. And San Diego quickly scored two runs to take an eight to six lead. They brought in their tremendous all-star closer, Trevor Hoffman. I knew it was over. I knew it was over. I turned off the TV. I turned off the light. I went to bed. 
And as I was lying in bed in the dark, I thought, but what if the Rockies rally? I turned on the light. Already the man was on second base. He had gotten the double. The next batter was up. He hit a double. A run scored. It was eight to seven. Should I turn out the light and go to bed? No. The next batter up, who was Matt Holliday, hit a triple off the wall. The run scores. It's tied eight to eight. Oh, my goodness. And then, lo and behold, there was a long fly ball to right field that was caught near the wall. The runner tags at third. He heads home, head first slide, and he's declared safe. The Rockies win nine to eight. If I had gone to sleep, I would have missed it all. I love sports for these reasons. Because you see, as Yogi Berra would say, it's not over until it's over. It's comeback time again. Do rallies like that happen in life? What do you do when all hope seems lost? Do you turn off the light and go to sleep? Do you leave the place of pain and run away? You see, the text today starts somewhere in the daytime of Easter. But it's an Easter where no one has yet understood, perhaps except Mary. But no one else has really understood what's going on. There'd been a nice run, but the user had now come into the game and turned the lights out at the cross. It had actually been a bad streak for several days. After the intimacy of the Last Supper, that Thursday night had become a nightmare, full of fear and anxiety. There was an agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was the betrayal by Judas, capture by the temple guards, a trial before the high priest, and denials by good friend Peter. Friday had been more awful with a trial in front of Pilate, a scourging, a whipping, and the sheer agony of the crucifixion and the mocking that went on. Most of the disciples ran away, couldn't bear to watch. They turned it off. Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath had been deathly quiet. It was a a day surrounded by utter shock. Sunday, was a day maybe for life to start back to normal. It was start back to normal. It was the first day of the work week for the Jews, like our Monday. For the followers of Jesus, could life return to any sense of normalcy after the incredible disappointments of their lives? So the first Easter actually started with sad hearts. That afternoon, these two disciples are traveling seven miles away from Jerusalem to a place named Emmaus. You don't walk seven miles that quickly. It takes several hours. It appears they're getting out of town and going home. One named Cleopas, the other one's nameless. Luke begins the narrative by saying they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. I would imagine it was a bleak discussion probably about the crucifixion. And in the middle of the discussion, something remarkable happened. As they walked along, and Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. 
As I read that, I wonder, how was he unrecognizable? Jesus. I grew up in a church where there was a big painting of this in the parlor. And it was obvious there were two people walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus was right in the middle of them. And as a little child, I knew that was Jesus. How could he be hidden from them? Was there a fog? Was there a mental fog? Was Jesus wearing a hoodie? I don't know. And then the stranger asks this remarkable question. What were you two discussing as you walked along? What a curious question. Likely Jesus knew what they were talking about. But Jesus loves to ask questions. And then he asks 287 questions and he answers three. He loves to ask questions. Luke tells us their initial response was that they stood still. Their faces downcast. The overwhelming issue here is one of sadness. They've got sad hearts. They lived three years in the springtime of hope. Hope that life was about to be all right. And then the disciple Cleopas spoke up with a rather pointed question. Are you the only one who, in Jerusalem who does not know what has happened in these days? I mean, it's almost like somebody asks us, why are we social distancing? And we want to say, do you not know we're in the middle of a pandemic? Who does not know? Do not know we're in the middle of a pandemic? Who does not know that? But they have sad hearts. I think some of us have sad hearts this year. 1,500 deaths in Massachusetts now because of this. Nearly 200 in Essex County. Jobs lost, social distance, masks, closures. Not able to gather all together in this room for six weeks now. Do you have a sad heart? John had a sad heart. For his first 40 years, you would have said that John was a success in everything that had to do with success. He was a star athlete in high school, had gone on to college to be an athlete. He was a wonderful student, brilliant. In college, he decided to become a doctor. He married his college sweetheart, residencies he wanted. He became an orthopedic surgeon. Everything was going great for him in an exorbitant life. And then something happened. He was sued a major suit for malpractice. The partner, the medical partner who had been with him for years decided it was time to move on and leave the practice. He specialized in backs, and ironically, he was suffering unrelieved back pain himself in his 40s. Then the most crushing blow of all, when his wife of nearly 20 years said she had decided to leave because, as she put it, he had never loved her. It seemed that he had never really loved anyone. And she found someone else who did love her, and John's heart began to break. People get sad for all kinds of reasons. They get sad for all kinds of reasons. Their life just isn't working out. They feel like something is just not right in this life. Someone important has died or is dying. A dream has died. A hope has faded. 
Some of you have known the deep sadness of lost love. Some of you have known depression that comes when careers move much more slowly or not at all like you thought. The coronavirus has caused tremendous sadness in this Easter tide. We didn't even get to have the big Easter egg hunt last week in this room, which is always fun. But you see, Cleopas and his friend had hopes that the world was going to turn out very different. And now they're walking back home, hoping to get over their grief, but without a vision of what the world would be now. One actually needs to go through a sense of sadness, even disillusionment with what the world offers. The Christian life begins, actually, when we finally conclude that a life apart from Christ makes no sense and leaves, finally, sadness. When we discover that the world can't give what we actually want because God created us for more than what this world can offer. And it's on a road like the road to Emmaus where Jesus meets us. Sadness is often the first thing that pushes us toward Christ. But then you find a second kind of heart on Easter. What Jesus calls a slow heart. Remember the stranger asks that question to Cleopas and, and responds to them that they are Foolish of heart, the word foolish here simply means, the word foolish here simply means ob being obtuse. They're not catching it. Doesn't mean stupid. But they're foolish and slow of heart to believe all the things written about the Messiah. Slow. Slow hearts. And then Jesus does something that I wish we had a video recording of. Because he started with Moses and all the prophets, and the text says he explained everything in the Old Testament that had to do with him. Wow. Where is that lecture? We need it. A lot of you watching may still be in a position of slowness. I think sometimes I am. Slow to embrace all that Jesus has for us. For years, it was a very slow heart that my friend John had. Rarely had time for worship. I'd see him on Christmas Eve. I'd see him on Easter. We'd make small talk about basketball. Normally, he saved Sunday morning for long bike rides, which is what he needed to do after he'd had a week long of medical practice. The family would come to church, but he didn't need it. But once his wife left him, he started showing up on the back row. I saw him almost every week on the bad row looking rather sad. But as he heard the word of God, something began to happen. It was not immediate. It was still slow in coming, but he began to hear something and want more. It was like he was on this road to Emmaus. His life was so sad, and yet a stranger was walking right beside him. And the Holy Spirit began beckoning John to himself, and John began to listen. Strange when you look at stories in this world about slowness and how we don't how we don't always pick up the clues. Years ago, I read a story about business in Switzerland. You see, in 1987, the Swiss had 80 percent of the world's market 
for watchmaking. And then in 1967, a Swiss engineer invented a different kind of watch that was run by something called a quartz crystal. That change would make quite a difference in watchmaking, but not in Switzerland. Because as he offered it to his firm, they said, no, that's not what people want in a watch. They need things that have springs and wheels. Otherwise, people won't think it's a watch. So the man sold the idea to Texas Instruments and then to a firm in Japan. And we now know the rest of the story. Slow to believe. Story of Easter so many times. But are we really slow to embrace this? On July 21st, 1969, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. Richard Nixon, who was then president, thought it was the greatest event since creation. That's what he said. The greatest event since creation. And Billy Graham happened to remind him that there was a day of resurrection that had occurred between creation and the landing on the moon that was actually more significant. Slow of heart. You see, many know Easter has happened, but we don't know that it's changed us. These two disciples could have told Jesus to get away. They could have said, leave us alone. We don't want to hear any more of this. But for some reason, they began to listen. They recognized the opportunity. They were so moved that actually they asked the stranger to come to their house and the opportunity. They were so moved that actually they asked the stranger to come to their house and eat with them. They wanted him to sit at their table. And as Jesus did, he took bread and when he broke it, they realized who it was. It's Jesus. And then he disappeared. And then they report a third kind of heart. There was a slow heart. There was a sad heart. Now there's a burning heart. A burning heart. They knew Christ was risen. Christ is still risen. They had known about him, but they didn't quite know him until they saw that he was alive. A burning heart is what so many people experience when they get to know the risen Christ. When the disciples experience the Lord on the day of Pentecost, there is a fire that lands on them. Blaise Pascal, Blaise Pascal described his conversion as a burning heart. Wesley described his conversion as a heart strangely warmed. John Calvin portrayed his heart as a burning heart given to the hand of God. When your heart is burning, that's when you realize how much you love God. That's when you realize, I want to serve this world. When your heart is on fire, you want to tell somebody else. So these disciples raced the seven miles back to Jerusalem that night so that they could go tell everybody, we saw him, he's alive. And by the time they got back, he had appeared to Peter as well. And they all had a fabulous, he has risen, he has risen indeed kind of moment. And that's what happened to John when he sat on the back row of the church. He heard the word, it began to stir, he wanted to know more. He came and asked me if I would read the Bible with him every week. So every week for a year, we just kept opening it, and it all came together for him, and he began to understand, embraced it. His wife still left him. The lawsuit was totally against him. He had to change his type of medical practice, but he learned how to love because he had received a Savior, and he was different. 
How's your heart today? Is it a sad heart? You just haven't found your rhythm in Christ yet. Is there no dance in your step? It's just there. Could you have missed Jesus somehow? Or is your heart a slow heart? You know the facts. You don't even doubt that the tomb was empty on Easter, but you've just never met him and seen him in the breaking of the bread. Could you invite Jesus in to sit at table with you? Would you meet Jesus and invite him wherever you are as you watch this? Could it be that this? Could it be that you've got a burning heart and you understand this thrill and you want others to see it as well? A great preacher from another century was named W.F. Sangster. After a debilitating stroke, he lost his ability to speak. Hard for a preacher to lose your ability to preach. As Easter approached, his daughter commented on how it must be hard not to be able to shout hallelujah on Easter. And Sangster smiled and wrote out this sentence. Better to be without a voice and to be unable to shout hallelujah than to have a voice and not want to shout. In the midst of a devastating virus that is separating us from the life we once knew, Sarah sang, Christ is still risen. Let your hearts burn with the presence of a risen Christ that might just transform everything about this strange season. Let us pray. And now, O oh Lord, seal our hearts with the burning of your holy word that we might be people that live through this with the deepest of burning joy. For it's in Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.